Is it really that important to eat organic? What is conscious parenting? Does homeopathy actually work? Oh god, the flu. How do I beat it naturally? How do I prepare for birth? What are the benefits of meditation? This is Healthy Happy Home, the podcast that opens up discussions on every aspect of wellness. We explore the topics of natural health and well-being, holistic parenting, consciousness, ethical entrepreneurship, inclusivity and wellness, and anything else that might fall within those parameters to empower you to live your healthiest, happiest, and most fulfilled life. If you're tuning in, chances are your journey to wellness has already begun. Our intention with this podcast series is to support that journey and to be your go-to place for actionable, tangible, authentic, and time-honored ways to integrate wellness into your life. We're Lauren Vacneen and Tilly Wood, and we want to thank you for choosing Healthy Happy Home and for making your well-being a priority. This season of Healthy Happy Home is sponsored by Mega Home Water Distillers, the most reliable and efficient home drinking water distiller. Mega Home are kindly offering listeners of the Healthy Happy Home podcast a 5% discount. Just use the code HHH5 at checkout. Thank you to Mega Home. Looking for a wellness break in the UK? Well, you're in the right place. At Retreat Life, we take small groups on exclusive escapes to focus on well-being, fitness, and health. Relax, reconnect, and re-energize on one of our empowering retreats, all located in unique locations within the natural beauty of the British countryside. For more info, go to www.retreatlife.co.uk. We're speaking today to poet, writer, wife, and mother of six from West London, Vianne Immer. Vianne's work centers around themes of womanhood, identity, and race, inspired by her own journey to self-love and self-acceptance. Vianne writes to inspire women to walk in their truth, being all that they were called to be, recognizing their inner strengths and overcoming their pasts to emerge empowered, ready, and renewed. Her portrayal of words and feelings, both on paper and when she speaks, had a tremendous impact on us both, which is why we asked her to be our guest for this particularly special and delicate episode. As a black British woman who uses her platform to educate people on race, as well as being a mother of six, we knew she'd be able to help us delve into this issue in the most straightforward, honest and educational way possible. We've observed how draining these recent weeks have been for the black community, and we're beginning beginning to understand that actually life is never far from being this intense when you're black. Before we get started, we just wanted to preface why we're doing this episode. We felt it wouldn't be right to have this platform and not use it to help educate people, including ourselves, on this subject. We're not a current affairs podcast and we're not trying to pretend we know everything that we should about this subject, but we take our responsibility in this seriously as two white women who work in the wellness industry. We came to this lifestyle and subsequently to this podcast because well-being for us doesn't mean kale salads and expensive workout gear. It means a holistic approach to living. It means living intentionally and raising conscious kids. It means understanding the needs of others. It means consciousness and it means bettering ourselves and being committed to constant growth and development. The wellness industry isn't reflective of the society we live in and we'd like to begin opening up that conversation to see why. And hopefully by the end of this, have a clearer vision of what we and our listeners can do to remedy this. 
Um, yeah, so like we said, we, we, we like to talk about racial diversity and wellness, but before we do, we think it's um, important to open up the conversation on systemic racism generally to better equip ourselves to understand the next part. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for being with us. That's all right. Thanks and, for having um, me. You're so welcome. So we just want to open this straight up on why has the death of George Floyd opened up this conversation in such a global way? I mean, that is so, so much we can say on that because for black people, the death of George Floyd just joins, you know, the whole list that we already are very much familiar with. Um, it was horrible and grotesque to witness. And I think it, it wasn't any more though than any other death, especially for the, the family of the, you know, the deceased and men that have died this way in the past. But I think the whole world watched this, you know, we're on lockdown, you know, there was less distractions. It was, it's like it happened in slow motion. There was mm. no scuffle. There was no, you know, we, we heard him audibly, you know, fight for his life and try and, you know, let them know that he was literally dying and it didn't stop. And I think that just touched everyone. So the black community were like, here we go again. This is nothing new. It's happened. We've seen it. We've been traumatized by it in the past. But the rest of the world, unfortunately, and sadly for me as a black person, I can't speak for everybody. It kind of hurt me because I thought, God, it took this level of murder to make everybody say, oh, yeah, we can hear you now. Um, right. You know, we have been we've been screaming for it since the 1600s, you know. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I mean that. I think that exactly is what it is. It's it's, it's been a case of the black community have been talking about this for a long time. You know, lots yeah. of people have been trying to raise awareness on this subject. Um, you know, I I in my personal experience remember the first time I ever heard about this was through the death of Stephen Lawrence. Yeah, um, which was in the nineties, and yeah. um, knowing how long it took for his family to get any sort of justice. So. Yeah. I think that's probably what it comes down to, isn't it? That this has been going on just because yeah. we're hearing it now and lots of people are hearing yeah. it now doesn't mean that the fight hasn't been very real yeah. for yeah. a very and, long time. But also, do you feel that the fight that, have, that has been going on for a long time has also given so much weight to this now? Because it's like, there's, there, you know, as soon as you start to look back and for us when we were researching it, you know, you just realise, my God, there's been so many people trying to talk up about it and so many incidents. But actually, this happening has really opened everyone's eyes. But all the work that's been done over the years by people, you know, campaigning, and it has got us to where we are now. It's not, it's not that this is just the first thing. It's just mm -hmm. it kind of maybe needed this to really kind of kick well, it in. Well, yeah. I mean, I have said that his death is like, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. It's like it just screamed louder for some reason. You know, I can't say why, because to me, there's not one death that's more, you know, um, poignant or distressing than another, especially when you're dying by the hands of police. There have been younger men than George Floyd that have been killed by police. You know, as I'm 40 years old and I've grown up knowing about these civil rights leaders that were assassinated doing the same thing. It's just been part of our history, part of our knowledge when you're in the black community that we are fighting um, daily to live and, and have equality. Um, and like I said, for me, it always just goes back to, oh my God, like we had to die in this way for us to sort of be deemed as worthy of, you know, everyone's attention. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I just find it kind of, it's, it's a great thing, but it's kind of sad at the same time. Yeah, mm, sad just, that it, it took so long. I, yeah. um, so I'm, I'm Jewish and yeah. um, 
so I understand what it is to sometimes feel hated or to feel other. Yeah. yeah. Um, I understand bias and prejudice. Uh, yeah. You know, I've had pennies thrown at me leaving school. I've been called some wow. really awful things just because of mm-hmm. my religion. But the fact still remains that if I want to, if I need to, if I'm able to, I can mm. still hide behind my whiteness. Yeah. Um, if someone, I can sense someone's anti-Semitic, but they have no way of knowing I'm Jewish, I can quietly yeah. walk by. Yeah, sure. Black people don't have this luxury. No. And obviously it goes way deeper than that. So that's for any white people listening who may have been hearing the term systemic racism, um, but don't really know what it means at its core. We really want to take that back to basics so everyone can feel that this information is relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we'd like to know is how much has racism really played a part in your life? And the reason we ask it like this is because when people, white people say, but I'm not racist, but yeah, yeah. they yeah. need to forget about slavery. They need to move on. Yeah. They want to be treated yeah. as equal. So why don't they stop talking about it? Yeah. Um, yeah. What they don't understand is how racism has affected pretty much the entire life of a black person. And yeah, yeah. life is kind of hard enough as it is, but being black, you come to things even harder. And I, I say that because Candice Braithwaite explains it as, the smallest specks of racism that eat away at a black British person every day. It's like, you know, when you send your kids off to school, it's like, don't forget your this and don't forget your that. And I think as black people, we just so accustomed to knowing that when we walk out that door, we know exactly what we could possibly face and in certain environments know what we're going to face. Mm. It's that kind of, don't forget your toothbrush. Don't forget today you're a black person and you're in a white society. It's something that doesn't go. It's just constantly there. It's, you know, at the school gates, it's in your workplace, it's when you're receiving care. It's, it, it's just all aspects. Even my children, my eldest is 12, and she's even said to me, mum, you talk differently when you speak to certain people. I know exactly what she means. What does it's she mean? How- what she means is that, and a lot of black women, uh, people can relate to this, you have, your, you have your natural stance, your natural speaking voice, your natural way you, you know, your tone and your, uh, the way you deliver your, 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 your speech. But when you're speaking to a white person or a person in authority, a teacher, um, at the school, a doctor, or you kind of feel, and not everybody, like I said, I cannot speak for the entire black race, but a lot of us have this sort of telephone voice. Yeah. We have this kind of, even my mum is in her 70s, and she doesn't even have much of a, uh, her Dominican accent, but you hear it, it's switch on. It's like, accept me a little bit more, or let me not make you sort of notice the otherness in me. Let me try and make it a bit easy for you to receive my words by speaking more like you. And then yeah, not be so, judged. You know, yeah, not be judged. Um, even though like there are lots of black people that don't have different accents and don't put different accents on, but it's that mental thing that just it just is in it's just inherent in our daily thought processes and, and our you know, our actions. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so it's really awful because it kind of makes you feel like you have to be on good behavior or something like yeah, you, yeah, you're totally. born black British, but suddenly you have to be like, Oh no, I'm being doing the right thing. And yeah, like, it's ridiculous. Like, isn't it? like, like totally. You just, <laughs> you know, you just kind of always feel like take a deep breath, count to five. It's okay. And what I feel like what's happening now is that it's a shame that I have to use the word permission, but 
just to get a buy. Nobody wants to lose their job. Nobody wants to make their child um, have the spotlight on them for the wrong reasons at the school. You try and deal with things so politely, so nicely. You don't want to rock the boat. You know, you want your kid to get invited to the parties. You don't want your boss to see you as troublesome or anything. So you just play this sort of little game. But I think now with all what's happening, I think a lot of black people are thinking, do you know what? Get this. The gloves are off. This is it. This is how we're doing it. No more tiptoeing. No more being tone police. No more, you know. And it's sort of like a sort of a freedom where, in our in our homes, in our safe places, we will share our stories and say, "Can you believe it?" And she did this. No way. And we've all got the same stories. And then we leave our houses, and then we put on that same. Okay, you know, accept us. You know, we'll, and then now I just feel like the disruption has probably freed a lot of. Um, and change a lot of our thinking now where you know what we're not doing that anymore you know wow. we're not doing it anymore yeah um yeah it's kind of given people i've i've heard a lot of people telling stories that they hadn't told before of when they first experienced um yeah. in england as a yeah. black black person and yeah we just kind of wanted to ask you then when did you have that moment of thinking oh i'm people are looking treating me differently because of my skin color were you young <laughs> like when did it, it occur to you that you were black Oh, from childhood when you um, you're watching cartoons and you just uh, you put um, like we put not a towel or a skirt backwards on our heads to give us the long hair because mm -hmm. we didn't sort of see it that how we were with our little pigtails, you know that wasn't a princess that wasn't you know the the, the pretty fairy they didn't look like us so mm -hmm. you know for us to kind of become that and that's just innocent child play. Do you know what I mean? We, yeah. But we felt as though we had to change to be able to, to kind of take part in the most basic childhood privileges of being a princess and being a fairy. Um, watching TV and just knowing that you couldn't see, you didn't see yourself. My niece at three years old looked at me and said, auntie, um, this was in 2003. And she said, auntie, I, I want to be white. And I was like flabbergasted. because I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like I was, why? And she said, so that I can be on TV. And oh I was like, so floored that at three years old, she'd already grasped that to get on that box that she's watching, she needs to not be who she is. And that was at three years old. So, you know, I'm 40, so it's hard to kind of say when it exactly happened, but it's just always been there. Mm. You know, it's just always, always been there. You just know. And what about with your own children? How do you yeah. sit down to explain to your child that they need to understand why things are different for them, how they're different for them? What things do you feel like you need to explain in order to keep them safe? And what does that do to you and your mental health as a mother? It hurts because um, it literally happens when they're about five. Um, and it happened earlier for my son because he's, he was my first son. And I know it's even harder for black boys. Mm. Um, it hurts because you feel that as a mother, you protect your child. If something's scary on the TV, you cover their eyes. If um, you know, you're crossing the road, you hold their hands and you teach them about crossing at the right time. And with race and something that they were born into, you're having to throw them in at a young age, you know, rated 18. People may not like you just because you're black, your skin is brown. And it's sort of like, so you can protect them from everything, but that, that you're going to have to bring it to them 
as soon as they can understand it because whether or not they understand it or not it's going to be brought to them from the outside world and sometimes from their very teachers that are sitting with them six hours a day mm -hmm. so um for me it was little things like just knowing do you know what we're different first of all it's the affirming them you are beautiful you are amazing you're so smart your hair is beautiful you know um look at the bees you know no one in your class can have hair like you having to kind of make them put them on this pedestal so that they know anything that they face they they've been affirmed so that's the first thing you build them up then it's uh you know for my son do you know son I always ask him, is anyone naughty in class? Um, he'll tell me who's naughty. And I say, honey, can you um, not play with that person too much? Which I'm sure lots of parents would say, but we add on because you're a black boy. If something goes wrong at school or somebody gets hurt, they may choose you or say that you were the one that started it or did it. So mm -hmm. it's already having to kind of put such a responsibility on their little young minds to have to kind of, you know, kind of handle such heaviness my daughter um she's now 12 she's just started high school it's the honey you have to work so hard you know you put your hand up you be seen you know make sure they know you're in that class um she's in a predominantly white school and she went from her pretty much more mixed primary school she was still only one of two black children girls in the class but now and then she went to high school where again she was one of only two but the general school um community is white and within the first two weeks she came home and said to me mummy um every time i put my hand up uh well, it's happened in three different subjects the teachers are getting my name mixed up with the other black girl's name so um now my daughter has a very english sounding name uh it's not hard to pronounce and i'm not making excuses i'm just saying just to yeah. you know, set the scene very english sounding name um but it's a double barrel so it's unusual right then the other black girl has an even more unusual but two syllable name right mm -hmm. and she would put her hand up and instead of being embraced by her name yes she's getting oh, so said saying like say okay my daughter's name says sally and the other girl's name is sharon um, so it would be like my daughter's putting her hand up and it'll be like, yes, Sharon. Yeah. And my daughter, before she gives her answer, has to say, I'm not um, Sharon, I'm Sally. And that happening, not in one class, not in two, but three. Even getting handed the other black girl's work when it was being handed and then having to say, this is not my work, this is the other girl's work. Wow. So after a while, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. My daughter's 12. I've been building her up since she was born and I'm not going to have her first few weeks of high school, her self-confidence being brought down and being kind of, you're telling her you don't see her. Mm. You're telling her that you're not, she's not even worthy to remember her name. Um, and the way I see it is in, that, in the class, there are lots of other white children. Their names are not getting mixed up. No. And there are more children to get confused by. So the only two black children you can't get their names correct. So I wrote an email to the head of year. And at the time there was another race situation going on and I had to put down the current climate. I'm really surprised that this is even happening. And after that, it never happened again. I understand people can make mistakes, but I found it quite strange. That it was only the two black children in the class that looked nothing alike. What it comes down to is that, that quote by Candice Braithwaite, that it's the smaller specs of racism yeah, that you yeah. on a daily basis, that it's not yeah. happening to anyone else.
exactly exactly and i don't yes i'm like let want my children to be aware of things but i am not gonna make them become comfortable with it you know that with, it, with every generation that's coming up we're changing that my mum would have probably kept quiet and accepted that that was the wrong name right. for the whole school time i wouldn't have um and my children surely won't mm. so it's just just simple things like that you know so as a black british mother these days how do you feel about being affected by these issues on a daily basis? It's, you kind of feel like, like I said, it's every mother is their child's first defence, you know, their protection. But you kind of feel like you're that kind of barrier. Sometimes I'm even worried that I'm becoming paranoid because if my, <laughs> my I, I, you know, my, my son would come back with a sticker and I'd be like, what did you get that sticker for? And he'd be like, oh, for tidying up the class. And the second day, what did you get a sticker for? tidying up class and and I'm like son I know you're such a really sweet boy and he would do that at home but I'm thinking you know straight away is it because he's black you know why why is he always cleaning the classroom you know you start mm. having to, yeah. to check things because you're like not on my watch do you know what I mean because you know um like when my um daughter was said the little boy said her skin looks like poo um my question was like, when I pick my child up, do we need to have a conversation about it, teacher? Mm. Shouldn't have to wait till we get home and my daughter tells me that happened. And then I say, what did the teacher do? And she said, okay, she spoke to him. But my thing is, this is a big deal. Being yeah. told your skin looks like poo is more than being told you smell. It's being more than told, oh, you know, you're rubbish at football. Yeah. This is attacking the very core of who they are, you mm. know? Um, so if when I so teachers kind of have to be a bit more it's more than just uh children calling each other names yeah from a young age children you know we they are aware of more than we you know give them credit for and they know that that everyone's different they can see color um and you know I, I just feel like teachers and people in authority need to be more aware that um black children are affected by this deeply because now it's not I think she'll do more if she be told that she smelled we spray perfume have a good bath but to be told you, you your skin looks like poo how do you change that how how do you address that you and that know? must yeah. be in terms of kind of your mental health as a mother it must yeah. be a really difficult balancing act because you're saying that you are, are kind of preparing them for right this is going to happen to you because you're black and this is you know yeah. you've got to be prepared for this and in a way you kind of probably don't want to do that because you don't want to kind of preempt that but you yeah. also know that you have to do that because you have to protect them so that must be really? I can imagine that being very difficult and very kind of um, yeah challenging as a mother just uh -huh. kind of tearing you it's in it's a conflict it's a conflict but I was so proud when my daughter told me because she's quite quiet but when she told me about the whole name thing I I just did a deep sort of relief sigh because I was like great she knows that she can advocate for herself she's realized there's something wrong and she's able to talk to me about it um that made me feel good yeah, you know yeah. I remember when I was um, having swimming lessons and that's in the 80s and uh, at school and black hair when it gets wet it normally shrinks and uh, so my mum busy single mum would always braid my hair tightly so that during the swimming lessons, if it water went under my hat, you know, hair, hair would stay intact, fine. 
but one evening she wasn't able to so um we were I went to school with my hair loose under the hat so after swim lessons my hair completely shrunk couldn't get back in a band it was just like disaster you know and everybody in that class made me know it was a disaster it was oh my god look at your hair and all the giggles and the laughter and then I'm trying to fight with it and the coach back to school and the the um uh, coach driver uh, when he's sort of checking us before he uh, he drove off or oh, don't be getting all that hair in my uh, you know mm. bus and you know but the white girls are brushing their hair and it's okay but it's like so and you're just dying you're literally just dying yeah. so it's just all of those kind of uh, memories that I have I'm just like not my kids so because mm. I have those memories I'm just doing everything I can to kind of build that fence around them and avoid anything like that happening yeah you know so it's just it's just constant just constant I like that you said that you would go in and talk to the teachers whereas your mum may not have said anything Mm. that's that's yeah thing isn't it that yeah I mean and hopefully schools are going to do a lot more to educate the teachers and and to the curriculum so that you know the his the British history hasn't been photoshopped as it has at the moment yeah and that will be much better for for kids, won't it, to understand yeah. really what, what, what's been going on. If we can mm-hmm. start with education for children, it would really yeah. help. Exactly. At home, um, we, I teach them a lot about black history mm. in any way, you know, in so many forms. They are so informed about their history um, because I know at school, even as a, an African-Caribbean woman, I didn't even realise that the whole of the Caribbean that where all my relatives and friends came from, you know, only came to be because of the transatlantic yeah. slave trade. You know, mm. I'd had no idea mm. that, you know, we weren't originally from there. I just thought, yeah, you had African people and you had Caribbean people, mm. not knowing that we were one and the same, um, but just, you know, displaced, enslaved. Mm. So there's just so much that for, for my children that they know it a lot earlier. The school that my kids go to, they, they yeah. are a load of the ex-pupils sent in a petition to the school saying, why didn't you, you have not, you have failed us with our education because you haven't wow. prepared us for this and you didn't tell us this and we didn't. It, it's quite amazing actually that they've done that but I mean I really hope that that will, that will happen across the board I think now with school. Yeah. Have, you know. Yeah, change. <laughs> change yeah, it, it has it has to come it has to come and like there are a lot of parents there are a lot of parents you know myself included that are calling it out I mean we are not just we haven't sat down waiting for a George Floyd incident to happen before we've been you know speaking out for our kids we have been doing it but I think now where they would like to dismiss it brush it under the carpet um, you know kind of like oh don't worry we'll sort it out now I think they're going to be under a little bit more pressure and rightly so to know deal with it properly have um, a structure in place how do we deal with this when something like this happens because we're failing black children you know we're failing yeah. them it's like, it's like they sort of whitewashed history isn't it in Britain yeah like, unbelievable actually it really is yeah. yeah yeah and a lot of you know white British people don't know their history you know it's 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 yeah. like it, it's it's both of our history it's a uh, but you know you have got a distorted you know um version of your history and the accomplishments and and then black people are you know withheld um of the truth about their history so no one's winning you know so let's talk about the response all lives matter and why that's wrong um 
I did hear someone explaining it, describing it as if you go to A&E with your leg severed, you yeah. expect the surgeon to say to you, but all your body parts matter because not <laughs> is an immediate danger. But that's obviously just a very basic yeah, yeah. response. I think it speaks a lot to um, white fragility and always what kind of wanting to be like, don't forget us so sort of centering themselves in, um, in the situation and in, and in pain. It's like, it's okay. You hurt you get discriminated against for different things that you can change. But um, black people are, um, you know, being treated unjustly and oppressed and have been done so for centuries. And we are realizing that change is not happening. So we kind of have to make a lot of noise and say, hello, you know, we do matter. We, mess, we matter in the maternity wards. We matter in, you know, in the mental health um, services. We matter in schools because, um, you know, society showing us and proving to us over and over again that we don't i've said to myself people have said oh it's about two buildings on being on fire and you know the fire brigades that coming what about my house but i said forget houses we're on fire i'm on fire yeah. black people are on fire and we need the fire brigade to come and help us but you'd still have someone saying but what about me but you're not on fire do you know what i mean yeah. we are on yeah. fire you know i don't really know how <laughs> more it can be broken down um I think some people are just going to choose to be hard-hearted um, and choose to be ignorant. You know, in I'm, I, I shared some jokes today with a friend of mine, another black woman, um, because, you know, the Neighbourhood app, uh, I recently joined it. I think I might have to come off. But um, a woman today was like, oh, I saw a fox and um, it's injured. And, you know, oh, can we look out for it? And somebody was saying we need to leave water. And I just sort of um, was reading it. And, you know, I'm all for animal rights and stuff. But it's made me think, gosh, there's some people that actually care more or would do more to advocate for a wild fox than they would a colleague at work that's being discriminated against based on the colour of their skin. Right, that's um, so true, isn't it? Because you do, you hear yeah. that a but, lot, you know, all these things yeah. that are close to people's hearts. And yeah. you've got to wonder, well, why isn't this close to people's hearts? Your heart, yeah, you know, advocate for animals. I've not got a problem with that. <laughs> Don't have a problem with that. But it'd be scary to think that you've gone and sent an email to like thousands of strangers about Fox, but maybe you've never even championed or tried to advocate for racial injustice once in your life. You know, let your child call a black child say they look like poo or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, you know, we do hear as well some white people saying, oh, well, slavery was hundreds of years ago. It's not relevant anymore to this conversation. Um, you know, why can why do you think, can you explain why it is still relevant? Yeah. It's still relevant because slavery was only abolished 78 years before my granddad was born. Mm. So it's not that, you know, yeah, it started in the 1600s. But, you know, I wouldn't be here as a Caribbean woman had there not been slavery, so it might have been hundreds of years ago, but my mere existence, you know, the fact that, you know, my mum's Dominican is purely because of it. So I'm seeing the results of slavery every time I look in the mirror. Mm. I know that we came from, you know, dynasties and, 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 and empires and civilizations in Africa. You know, we're not, didn't, our, our history doesn't begin with slavery, but for the Caribbean people um, and the creation of these countries, uh, kind of did so yeah yeah we don't have to ponder on it dwell on it yeah i'm not slave today but the mindsets created on those plantations unfortunately are still very much in the psyche and the mindsets um in uh white people today so yeah we are not in chains and yes white people are not holding whips 
but now the whip might be decide the, the whip is the, the power to decide who works for your company and the chains that we're in might be that I can't be myself in a white space I'm not bleeding from whips on my back but emotionally I, I'm bleeding because you know I'm, I'm, I'm being oppressed in every other area anything I can touch you mm. know I have an opportunity to be oppressed mm. you know so and yeah, it's where yeah. Kind of systemic racism began wasn't it because yes. you're being told you know children being brought up by say slaveholders in their house those slaves had to call those young children master yeah and that so those children are growing up thinking that's normal now yeah. yes we've had however many years to um to, to to educate ourselves out of that but at its core that happened yeah. <laughs> and that's where systemic racism begins the whole you know higher upper classes and lower classes yeah and that doesn't just shift overnight i always think to myself because slavery was abolished in um 1864 um yeah but in, in America, anyway, I think it was 1830 yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, different, yeah, 1837 or 18 in my mum's country, yeah. but I, I'm not sure what it was, um, you know. But yeah. it was only a hundred years later when kind of Jim Crow and segregation was abolished. So then when I said, and that was, that was, eight, uh, that was 1964, and I was born in 1984. So mm. that kind of makes my mind go a bit crazy to think that was 20 years before I was born. Exactly. Segregation exactly. was still allowed. So exactly. you know, if you think of it in that context, um, people who are listening to this are going to be kind of around the same sort of generation. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that long after we were born, no. like long before we were born. And that no, we wasn't. can't expect the older generations to have just instantly, because segregation ended or these, you know, people still had these biases and they're still filtering down definitely. through the generations and it's up to definitely. the generation to absolutely not filter that down, not through racist jokes that even though yep. they're funny or they're, yep. you know, Oh, it's just a laugh. It's just a laugh. Yeah. And, 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 and having to try and educate the older generation on that is, is difficult. It's a real task. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the racist jokes and the, 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 the random passing comments that might not be seen mm. by a white person as being offensive but what that does is just instill this this systemic bias yeah yeah it definitely i mean i remember once i had a like a workman come over and i that's the time i had my big afro and as soon as i opened the front door the first thing he said to me oh my god you look like you um been electrocuted um nice. doesn't know me it's not like a, a neighbour that I might think, oh, that's the racist neighbour that I just laugh at his jokes. No, this was, a, this was a workman coming into my space to provide a service and he felt comfortable to say that. I was, you know, like in shock, didn't say anything. So I just thought, just get the job done and he'll be gone. But that's, and yeah, he's, he was on the older generation and he's just think, oh my God, we've just got so much, so, so much more work to do. A friend yeah. of mine, she owns, she has a, her home and she had a plumber come in and uh, he just assumed it wasn't her house. And she said to her, okay, so if you could tell your landlord, and she's like, my landlord, this is my home. Yeah. Like, would have that assumption come if it had been a white, you know, woman that opened that door? Right. It's crazy. And this just comes it's back crazy. to what we were saying before about the everyday things and yeah. like how uh, Renny Edo Lodge explains it as... Um, our relationship with race infects and distorts equal opportunity. So that's kind of a really good analogy yes. for that, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know, 
The other thing I think is um, has to be thought about as well is that with all the kind of British Empire kind of colonization and you know take doing the slavery they also went to those countries and like wiped out the you know the the local indigenous history religion yeah, yeah. And, and and so that is that in itself you know some some burnt some books burnt down yeah. religious place at homes you yeah. know and you know, centers of worship and that in itself is another thing because they sort of robbed part of history from yeah. these people and then brought them over to work for them. It's like, yeah, exactly. Thanks. You know, you know, yeah, nice um, one. <laughs> yeah, you know, my, um, my husband, he is um, British Ghanaian and I, as a Caribbean person, I look at him and I used to kind of, I envy the fact that he can say, I was born here. This is my tribe. This is, this tells me, you know, what order of birth I am. And, you know, the history is so beautiful. Wow. Yeah. And, and then me as a West Indian, I'm carrying the name well, until I got married to him. It's carrying the name of the people that owned my family. Wow. Do you understand? Well, like, that, do, that, do you, you have all that information from, and you know, well, that because, that yeah, because you've got to think when you're in Africa, you have your, your names mm. and it will tell you what tribe you belong to, what part you're from. And then you get shipped over just what Tilly was saying. Everything's strict, yeah. right? Mm. Then you land on the islands. Um, you're, most of you are not, you're not all speaking the same language because you're pulled from different places. Mm. Um, and then you're set to work. Uh, you don't understand what on earth your slave masters are saying. Then you're sold and you all take up work on different plantations. You're branded with the name of your owner yeah. on your face or your back, whatever. And then when you look at the slave documents, it will say, you know, they're just given random names. Oh, we'll call you January or February or March. Just, you know, so completely not just, not you know, strip them of who they yeah. are. Yeah. And then obviously, um, as, the, um, as the generations go by and you're sold, every time you're sold, you have the name of your owner. There would be no English names on the islands in the Caribbean had there not been the names of the you know the the slave owners yeah you know that's, that's why Malcolm X changed his name to X yeah it's exactly hold the name of his yeah. slave owners exactly and I know the Caribbean is slightly different than America because America they have generations they literally with generations generations so they can trace their their way all the way with the Caribbean um I've read that it was so harsh the slave treatment out there that they were sort of the generations were cut short so i'm not saying that my maiden name can be tracked all the way to a plantation but the the english surnames on that island only exist because of the white slave owners right you know who there'd be nobody there just handing out surnames you know you were it was like your number plate yeah you know and um so right. that so every every black person you know you will see a, a black person can, can be called um sharon smith on paper, you don't know if that's a white person or a black person yeah. until she walks through the door. But why would a black person be called Sharon Smith? Yeah. You know, they're from Africa. We're originally from Africa. Those are not the names that we have. Mm. So the whole identity of West Indian people is completely steeped in the slave trade and the whitewashing of our history and where we were from. I know when Alex Haley wrote Roots, it did encourage a lot of people to trace their roots back to yeah. slavery. 
and a lot of people found out some very interesting information and mm. and I know what I've that I've read helped some of them was knowing what tribe they came from knowing where in Africa yeah. they're yeah. Yeah. And being and then yeah. feeling a deep sense of connection to that yeah. ancestry yeah. have you ever mm-hmm. tried to, to trace your I haven't and I've said to my husband because we don't live that far from the National Archives mm. and I'm like you know what we really, well, I, you know, I really need, want to do that. You know, um, I've got one of my aunts, she's 80 soon. And I'm saying before she passes away, uh, I've really got to, she's on my father's side and then from Grenada, that I'm going to have to really get to know all the names and mm. as many dates as I can, because, you know, all our elders are dying out and then we're just here and we just kind of have to assume the position that we began, but there was just so much before us. Mm. you know you know so much more before us but it's a real yeah. kind of uh, balance as well I suppose between wanting to you know for lack of a better word because and I just know this from being Jewish as well wanting yeah. to assimilate yeah but yeah. also wanting to very very much hold on to your heritage and understand your heritage before there mm-hmm. is no one left who can explain to you yeah where you know like, where like, your ancestors are from to- totally I mean I used to hate my name growing up in you know the 80s and 90s you know I I shared with you Lauren that you know my mum wanted to call me um Natasha yeah and my dad was like no (laughs) it'd be an Emma because even his name was an English name and my dad changed his name to a more you know I would say Afro African sounding name so for his kids he didn't want us to have um that, those kind of English names um but growing up I oh my god I was like cursed him so many times why didn't you let mum call me you know in my mind why didn't you let mum call me Natasha because I'm constantly having to you know tell people how to pronounce my name it stands out like you know you know it stands out ridiculously and um I hate it but now I love it mm. you know I absolutely love it um because it just makes me even though I'm West Indian and I don't know where on earth in Africa I came from but it makes me feel a little bit closer to who I am, you know, it's, you know, and that's always a small, small little a thing that I can kind of like, makes me feel good. Yeah. And yeah. Connected. That's why I kept, that's why I kept my maiden name for work and not, right. You know, Cause it's, yeah. it, it's more, I guess, like exotic than my husband's English. Yeah. It's your ancestry, isn't it? It's, it's your yeah. Dinner, you know? yeah. 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 It's, you know, I, I was happy when I got married and I was like, yeah, I've got a name that actually you can trace, you know? Absolutely. We wanted to talk about the, the whole thing of um, when white people say, but I don't even see color. And, yeah. and I'm going to quote Rennie Edo Lodge again, because she says, color blindness does not accept the legitimacy of structural racism or a history uh-huh. of, of white racial dominance. Uh-huh. And not seeing race does little to deconstruct racist structures or make life easier for black people. What we want to really kind of unpack here is how we make this work because one thing that we are mindful of is seeing color because at the end of Mm -hmm. the day, that is your heritage. Yeah. Just like we're talking about, it's important that we, we see, we acknowledge, we understand your heritage. And then at the same time, I've had a few black friends say to me, I don't, I don't like when people ask me where I'm from because I'm from England. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So do you know what? Let's break this up. Let's talk about the but I don't even see colour thing first. 
Mm -hmm. Well, I wrote a poem and it goes, if you don't see colour, then you don't see me. It is simply a lie you tell yourself so that you can live in blissful ignorance, so that you don't have to do the work, so that you can turn a blind eye, so that all the atrocities faced by carriers of melanin can simply be denied. And for me, I want you to see me. I want you to um, see my colour. And because you see it anyway, I don't believe when people say they don't see it. Yeah. Because if my husband was walking down the street at night, six foot tall, dark skinned black guy, you're going to see his colour. You know, mm -hmm. the police see our colour. The government sees our colour. So it can't, you can't just pick and choose when you want to see our colour. It can't just be when you are, you are worried um, or you want to make a complaint because there's too many black boys hanging out. But the, across the road, there's the white boys hanging out, but they're not a threat. So I just don't buy it at all. I don't yeah. buy anyone that says it's just a lie that you're telling yourself um, because you do see it when you're scared or when you want to tap into any biases or prejudices against other races, you do see colour. And you see a lot of um, people when they're pushed and um, there's an, uh, an argument or a fight that kicks off, what's the first thing that comes out? It's a racial slur. So mm. I just don't buy it. So I can address it, but my stance is, is as Rennie Edo Lodge says, like, you can't say you, you, you don't see it, because you do, yeah. you do. And when we asked, at the beginning of the recording, we asked you how you would prefer to be referred to as yes. black woman or woman of colour. And you said black woman, other, mm -hmm. other people may say woman of colour. Is that, would you find that offensive then? Would that upset you if um, someone said woman of colour or is it just, it's, yeah. Well, it wouldn't upset me because I understand it's a term that's used now, yeah. but yeah. I hate it. have hated it from the start because mm -hmm. what is a woman of colour? You know, yeah. what, what is that? You know, what, am I Asian? Am I Chinese? Am yeah, but also I, like, we all have some sort of colour. So it just is yeah, like exactly. people who are white just, then don't have a colour. Or... Yeah, it's like, what is a woman of colour? I think it's just like such a paintbrush over. It's like putting us all in one bucket, woman of colour. You know, it's yeah. not like a bad, bad novel. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I just, I don't get it. Um, no, I'm a black woman, you know, I'm a black woman. But you know what it is? Let's keep it real. Women of colour, I don't believe was created by black people or a black person, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a nice, comfortable way for white people and non-black people, not non-black people, so I suppose, mm -hmm. well, for white people to address um, people from ethnic communities. It's nicer, yeah. women of colour, yeah. people of mm -hmm. colour, you know, but it's okay, you can say black. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, it's yeah. Not, it's not a dirty word, it's not gonna trigger, um, no, let us tell you what we yes. want to be called. Yeah. Um, you know, That's which is what you guys did. Um, yeah. what you guys did. And there are a lot of black women I've heard from they speak very eloquently and they say, I'm a woman of colour. And I think if that's how they would like to be called, um, you know, that's completely up to them and that's not a problem. But for me, I just feel like it's just throwing us all in one bucket. And, and um, you know, somebody uh, um, put up uh, on Twitter after George Floyd was killed, that it was actually um, an Asian man standing in front of... Um, the, the murder taking place, shielding, protecting um, the murder taking place. So you can't, if you put us all in one bracket and say we're people of colour, that means we're the same. It means we're a community. It means, you know, that, you know, we kind of look, we're one. Yeah, we're, we're a people. And yeah. how can you put all of us that have some yeah. colour 
in such a term and define us like that because you know at that when that man was standing in front of um the police officer murdering george floyd uh, i think we couldn't be far you know more far apart from being a um you know not from the same you know not from the same community yeah. not, not, not the same people in America, I've heard that um, Asian people, and, and they describe Asian as kind of um, uh, East Asia. as a Yes. Place. So for us, if we said South Asian. Yeah, Asian in yeah. England is kind of very different. Sort of thing. But yeah. in America, Asians are the, the, the minority that are least likely to be accosted by police. Mm-hmm. So that actually speaks volumes, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Um, and I watched, I saw an amazing video yesterday on Instagram um, by um, a South Asian man. And he said, like, talking to his own community, like, you know, we are often, you know, you know, racists, you know, in, in our communities towards black people. And we see that we are the better immigrants um, because, you know, we do well at school and we have great jobs and we're dogs and stuff. But he said, don't you understand that when we were um, sort of allowed to come into the United States, it, the visas were based on you had to have a good job and you had to have good qualifications, whereas black people enter the country on slave ships, chained yeah. to each other. Right. So, oh, um, yeah, so it's like, it's so sad that even you know, all the different immigrants are pit, pit, pitted against each other, um, even though, you know, we're all um, recipients of racism in different degrees. But we have to remember that, um, you know, we're experiencing it in different ways. Um, yeah, different ways. Do, um, I was reading this, um, Afua Hirsch, and she was saying about, she wrote this book called British. And yes. it was about, one of the things she, she talked about was people always, she was born British, yeah you know growing up and all her friends are british family mm-hmm. british people always would ask her where she was from and mm. then she would go oh yeah i'm from wimbledon and then would, <laughs> no, no, where, where where are you from like as yeah. sort of imply that you're not really from here because of the yeah. color of your skin like that yeah. is but then in some ways i think i want to ask people like what their heritage are because we're mm. also yeah. you, you'd be interested in people's heritage so what's the best Definitely. way for people to to manage that in a way that isn't offensive and is mm. you know being interested do you know what i always say i can't be the spokesperson but for me um if someone asks me where i'm from i naturally just say oh i'm from west london or um you know i'm, I'm british i mean you can hear from where i speak but um but i i'm happy to say i'm quite proud to say but my mum is mm. from Dominica and my yeah. father is Grenadian because I, I know what they're alluding to I yeah. only take offense I and mean, you can you, know, you can sort of judge it you know what I mean like where are you you know where are you from yeah. you know as opposed to you're different you're other but you can um you know when someone is asking you where you're from I know they don't mean what part of London I'm from or the UK yeah. um and for me I just think each case is a, is a different you know is dealt with differently yeah. each person it's going to be dealt differently. I think you have to judge it for yourself. And, and what's a trigger for some people? It's not a trigger for others. That is not a big thing for me. I know what they mean, but I, I take each person at their mm. own merit. Do you know what I mean? If you said, ask me where I'm from, um, I know you already know I'm from the UK, so I'm yeah. going to expound and I'm quite proud to say where I'm from. Yeah. It's different if you're using it then to, um, I don't know, to kind of put me on a lower to fuel your bias yeah yeah and i and obviously and i obviously don't know what's going on in people's minds when they ask but 
for me, like I said, I'm only going to answer this from my experience. Um, I don't take offense because I am an immigrant. My mum's an immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm proud that, you know, that, 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 that she is from where she is and that I have black skin. So I'm happy to tell you where I'm from. Yeah. You and know? I think it's the way we ask or the way people ask, like, you know, I wouldn't say, Hey, where are you from? Unless I wanted to know <laughs> you're, are you from, yeah. are you from Wimbledon? Yeah. 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 Maybe it, yeah. Because it, it, the funny thing is that I, how I relate to it and why I, so in Israel, everyone's from somewhere, right? Because Israel, right, okay. very few people in Israel were like from there for many, many generations. Yeah. So after the war, lots of people came in from, you know, East, uh, Eastern Europe. And then mm-hmm. uh, my dad and all his family came from like Morocco or, you know, the Arab countries. And yes. so it's a normal question in Israel. Literally, the minute you meet someone, what's your background? <laughs> right, Where are your parents right. from? Yeah. Which is a really normal question. So I would yeah. ask someone, you know, what's your background? What's your heritage? Well, for me, and, and I think, is that what, what's next? Is it where you're from? I tell you, and oh, okay. <laughs> or is it, yeah. oh, wow, do you know what? I went there on, on holiday. It's a beautiful place. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, um, great, you know, or blah, blah. Um, or not like, it's just what what next? Why are you asking me? Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, what's the energy yeah. behind the what, exactly. what's the behind the question? Yeah. Yes. And and I think so I think that's what I'm trying to sort of get around to that yes, there are people that are gonna be asking it so they can confirm your otherness. Um but I think the mere fact that I'm black says it anyway. Um because though I am born and bred in the United Kingdom I mean, I I even find it hard sometimes and find I kind of stutter before I even say I'm British. Mm. It, yeah. And that's because no matter what, I could have, you know, put a blonde wig on and bleach my skin, but I'm, I'm always going to be seen as an immigrant, no matter how well I speak, no matter how well I do in society. And, you know, I'm always going to be seen that way. So I am British for my passport. Um, it says, you know, that's where I was born on my birth certificate. But I know that my skin tells the story before mm. I tell you where I'm from. Mm. So, um, I, so I don't kind of sweat that too much. But as Tilly said, I think the energy behind it speaks volumes. And I kind of just take each time yeah. that happens at its own, you know, at its yeah. own merit, you know. And, and, if, and if it comes from a place of good intention, it's better to have those conversations. Definitely. Than Definitely. I, I listened to an amazing episode of Coleman Hughes's podcast. It's called Unlearning Race um, okay. with Thomas Chatterton Williams. He's a cultural critic and he's the author of a book called Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. Yeah. So he's not dispelling the, the argument that when Bernie, Sa- so when Bernie Sanders said, we don't hire politicians based on their race, but on their policies, mm-hmm. it sounded like a sane comment that people would want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It was condemned. Um, because it seems that there are arguments for all sides and unraveling those makes this conversation a bit more convoluted. But the reason the statement was condemned was because actually what critics were saying was that we need to hire based on race, because if a group of people are running a country or a business, that Mm -hmm. group of people will all come to the table with different life experiences, right? So if there's no one at that table who has been black or has been Asian or has been Jewish or has been gay or has been a mother, you know, or any of the other, many other things, how yeah. can all groups be fairly represented? So yes, the person needs to be capable for the job, but actually race is very important if you look at it in that way. So 
yeah in that way actually we very much do need to see color and race and heritage definitely definitely i mean yeah another thing that that he said um which i found very interesting which just relates to this and then we'll we'll kind of move on from this a bit was as a child a child growing up with a black father and his father was raised in jim crow texas and then went on to phd and a white mother the father used to say that the mother wasn't really white she had a black soul (laughs) so i kind of want to crack that open a bit because some people feel very connected to black culture for whatever reason So Mm -hmm. we may not have experienced life as a black person, which makes us Mm -hmm. unable to fully comprehend life as a black person. And we're not saying we're trying to do that. But do you accept or think it's okay that there are white people who feel like this? And what do you think of his comment? Um, You know, I've heard it before. My family, um, my brother was married to a white woman. My sister's children are by a white man. Uh, You know, so my family is very much quite mixed in terms of who you know we've have come into our family um and you will see that there are some white people that can cook really well and you know they've learned how to do certain things even speak um in some ways um it was you know sort of all the sort of the cultural you know the way that black people speak or they try to for me i don't have a problem with that but i don't it's, it depends when it starts becoming um, like appropriation mm. and and also it's uh, almost an an act that they can put on and take off so I just sort of feel like be white be Asian be wherever you're from and you can enjoy black culture but to even sort of say that or you're white with a black soul I don't really doesn't sit well with me only because no matter what to have that black soul you're going to have to take the good and the bad like that we experience as black people you don't get a black soul just from being able to act black or liking the black yeah. culture yeah. You ha- it comes with the trauma that we you know we, we face and the way that we've had to learn how to be so you know what I there's nothing I love people embracing culture you know you see every year at carnival we see it in don't have to put the tv on and see the music charts you know we our culture is completely embraced and loved but a lot of times we are not so if you're a, a white person that loves black culture and, 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 you know, says, you know, you're, you're not racist or anything like that, but what are you doing in situations where you're faced um, with a, a racist situation? Are you speaking up? Are you advocating for black people? Are you shouting them that you love black culture or are you using your privilege um, to be silent at those times? Um, you know, I feel like you, if you're going to do it, you're going to go, you know, you've got to be in all the way. And I don't think as a white person, you can always do that just because, you know, naturally you are white. I hope I'm making sense there. Yeah, because yeah, um, you haven't had the life experiences. Yeah. So, you know, it, you know, embrace it. Love it. You know, it's fine. But celebrate, I feel... Celebrate it. Yeah, yeah. celebrate it. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? just found celebrate that comment it. interesting because I just wondered how... Yeah, How it comes I've heard it said, and I do think it is more, I mean, I can't speak for him, but, you know, my brother has said before, like, yeah, you know, yeah, she's white, but God, you know, she's, she's, like, she's like a black woman bee. She's like a black woman bee. And we laugh because I know what he means, you know, but, but he also, I know that he knows that that statement can't be, you know, completely true. It's said with jest. Yeah, you know, because you know, I never know what it's like to be a white woman and vice versa. But we can enjoy and celebrate what we all bring to the table, what we offer, and what we what we represent. Yeah, absolutely. 
so we just wanted now to move on a bit to racial diversity in wellness. Um, obviously, the lack of representation and diversity within the wellness industry has been very obvious for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we can see that from lots of magazines and brand campaigns, right down to the sort of ratio of wellness classes, black you know, practitioners and um, owners of studios leading them. So the other thing that we have seen, though, is that there has been a new sort of feminist wellness movement with rising groups of black women on moving into the wellness industry, founding mm -hmm. really fantastic brands and wellness spaces like Black Girl in Om and Rihanna's mm -hmm. Fenty Beauty. Uh, so there's definitely been a massive improvement, you know, to allow for the whole spectrum of women and skin tones. But yes. it seems well, maybe in the UK, that's, it's still like a lot of the studios owned by white women. There's a lot of white practitioners. We don't see that diversity as much as maybe that it's coming through in the States. And mm -hmm. do you think, have you noticed that yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I have noticed that. I mean, you, you do see, you know, if you do see a group of women or a singular woman walk in with a yoga mat, normally they're a white woman, you know. Um, one of my closest friends of 25 years is a Pilates instructor and um, she you know has had sort of so many incidences where you know she knows that she sort of stands out um, she's not the norm uh, she feels like she kind of has to prove herself um, in that industry I it, it's sad that you know most of the practices in wellness um, like yoga kind of has been often you hear the phrase it's been colonized um, and it's just quite unfortunate, but is it is it a surprise? Is it anything new? Not really. Um, uh, but if but if white women are going to be kind of like I don't know, um, leading it out in the UK, so to speak, it make it inclusive by how you do your advertising. You know your right. your marketing. You know when I who you know I've never been to a yoga class before and my friends always want me to join her pilates but i just never have the time but if i if i find out your name or your your company and i go on your website or your instagram and i i'm scrolling and i'm scrolling and i don't see one black woman one asian woman one you know yeah. what is that telling me do you know what i mean mm. it's it's sort of telling me that this is not really for me um it's telling me that yeah, we are a wellness. We we are in the wellness industry, and everyone's welcome, and it's for women and feminism and all of that. But you you know, we haven't even got a stock photo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of a black yeah, person, yeah. just sort of to say, you know, everyone is welcome. Um, because we do know that the yoga industry and the wellness industry has become very white centered, um, and so you have to sort of do your part. I think for me to answer it is almost me having to think out think why am i not being included where i think the onus has to be on the practitioners what are we doing right. you know to yeah. open it up to the black community um and other ethnic minorities could we do more yeah. um yeah I and think i think that's it starts basically like you know marketing yeah. i think that's such a great answer because i think it you know I don't think it's necessarily a problem that white women are, are you know, that wellness, that white women are interested in wellness. Like anyone yeah, can be interested that's, yeah, in wellness. Yeah, that's and, you know, it's about how inclusive we make it. Suppose what we want mm -hmm. to try and get to the bottom of is why is it so many white women and so few black women 
actually taking the reins and and you know owning studios or um being practitioners themselves what what has where where has that started i think it honestly i think we can answer that just by looking at our entire conversation it's it's just it's the it's race it's why are there so many less black business owners mm. you know on, on 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 the streets i remember when i first went to new york and i know that the states are a lot more ahead of us in in terms of like uh the growth of sort of black businesses and the black dollar and all that kind of stuff but i was blown away and I was in my 20s and I said to my sister oh my god so many shops are owned by black people yeah. here let's move here you <laughs> yeah. know um because uh, in the UK you just don't see it you know yeah. um we've got our odd little shop here and there and you you, you speak to black people they say we can't get the loans or you know there's this the gatekeepers on you know I think the, the, the gatekeepers are the ones that give out the loans the landlords mm. like and if there's any kind of bias or discrimination, who's who's gonna who's gonna be the recipient of it? Black people trying to break into whatever industry it is that they want to get into. So if um, anyone wants so, still wondering what systemic racism means, that's the answer. Yeah, that is the it, answer. It, it comes from the top, and it doesn't mean that you are shouting out the M word or yeah. attacking someone because they're black. It means because if yeah. you are working in a bank and you are not giving someone a loan because they're black. You are preventing yeah. an entire industry from being more Basically. diverse. Basically. Yeah. And, and then um, I, I was reading that one black woman said that she went to uh, a yoga class and she's had a t-shirt on that said black is beautiful. And the, um, the, the um, practitioner came up to her and said, excuse me, um, you're not going to be able to do the class around that t-shirt because this is a wellness space and we don't allow any political statements. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that came out. I wish that I took, but I just literally read it online last night. Um, and then wow. my friend, um, in her training to um, become a qualified Pilates instructor, was told, oh, your body won't be able to do that exercise or that move. Um, so it's like, you know, they, they have like the microaggressions. Um, and so, it, you know, it's not that black women can't afford to join classes. It's not... It's just there is they're the gatekeepers mm. at the end of the day, you know. So it's yoga about is, inclusion. It's it totally it is about inclusion. Let us see ourselves in the marketing. Um, yeah, that's a really we, important part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us see ourselves. Then we'll say like, oh, we're invited. My opinions are it's sort of like just give credit where it's due, do it respectfully, and if you want to see more black people in it, open it up. Let us be seen. Um, you know no microaggressions um and you know i know in certain areas like um my friend was saying that some classes are like extremely costly and it's you know it's not even that um this is not even a black or white thing but it's that you're making it even more elitist and this is regardless yeah. of, of race yeah. um this is no, just sort of like sense. it's sort of saying you know what kind of people you want in that studio with you um you know if it's wellness yeah. and it's for women you know like yeah, I do. I agree with that, though. I, I, I so often don't go to yoga classes because I think, fucking 20 quid, 18 quid. Yeah. <laughs> There's this Green Tree Yoga Studio, which has opened up um, in South Central LA for people living in poverty. Right. Um, that's amazing. I think we need a lot more yeah. in the UK. Because yeah. you were mentioning microaggressions. I just, yeah. I'd just like to read something out from um, Giselle Lepomp Moore wrote for ID magazine. Yep. The 2014 Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey found that black adults have the lowest treatment rate for mental health issues, 
while type 2 diabetes is up to six times more common in those of South Asian descent, descent and up to three times more common among people of African and African Caribbean origin. When you combine that with everyday microaggressions, social media race rows, hate crimes, and the general political climate for people of color, wellness becomes a, self, a case of self-preservation rather than a luxury. So if we're perceiving wellness as a luxury, middle-class, you know, yoga studios with essential oils and expensive workout gear, mm-hmm. that's where we're going wrong. It's not. That yeah. doesn't have to be what wellness is about. Wellness is exactly. about being well. So yeah. we all need to be offered the same access to keep us mentally and physically well. Exactly. And I was saying to my friend um, that if you think wellness is normally like that extracurricular thing we attach on to the right. stressful part of our life, right? And if you're a black person and you've had a hard week or a hard day, you've been battling out with your racism and all the stuff that you deal with and life and children and husband and work, you're not exactly going to want to go and take your hard-earned money and throw it at in a studio or a practitioner that is kind of not saying that you're welcome or, or not demonstrating any kind of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. So black women will just, you know, not all, um, but you'll find it in other ways, you know, and we will find classes and activities that we can do that where we are celebrated because... I'd, I certainly wouldn't be investing in, into a class where I'm going to have more stress added to, to me yeah. because, yeah. you know, I'm not kind of wanted or welcome, you know? Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. You want to go and like let out, you know, just download yeah, a bit. Exactly. That, you don't want to yeah. be like, have, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I listened to this interview with uh, Makosi, who's an African American shaman. And she was actually talking about how slavery feeds into this because I'm a big, I do a lot of ancestral healing. I'm a big fan of ancestral healing and ancestral trauma and how that affects us. And what she says is that from there, you know, ancestrally, from there never being really a place to rest, that perhaps genetic Mm. memory could Mm -hmm. be down to black people that self-care isn't a priority, that they couldn't possibly indulge in such luxuries, luxuries, Mm -hmm. when when self-care when faced with so much adversity actually is a necessity of course it is um in in my life like i can say honestly my mum's never she self-care <laughs> like yeah. what is that um but in conversation with friends we sort of came to the conclusion that when our parents came here as immigrants like it Come on, i mean you're coming to a country you know where you're not wanted you're getting graffiti you know written on your your front door um you're you're on sort of you're in survival mode that battleground it's like i've got to just go to work make the money come home feed my kids get us to school like wellness is not really part of it but then in how i was raised um my mum's generation very much into the church so i would say for a lot of especially the windrush generation that came over the wellness came from that sunday when you went to church and you were surrounded mm. by your people, it was a time to let it all out, mm, you yeah. know, the rest, all your burdens. Like, so the reason why, you know, the church is such a massive, um, and it's not for all black people, but for a lot of, especially the West Indian community, the church became like the center of the community. It was that safe place, you know, where you're, you're, your bus conductors during the week, working for London Underground and getting mm. spat on and getting, you know, my godparents were conductors on those buses and, you know, the racism that they encountered that they shared with me, um, you know, so on, but on Sunday, 
donned your Sunday best and you're respecting your love, your life. So wellness shows up in many different ways. Okay, so we'd love to talk a little bit about racism now in maternity care. Yeah. We did a post on our Instagram last week which quoted a statistic from Candice Braithwaite's book, I'm Not Your Baby Mother, that said that in the UK, black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than any other race, and that black babies have 121% increased risk of being stillborn, and a 50% increased risk of neonatal deaths compared to white babies. So this is like so mind-boggling for us. Um, and especially when we've heard about cases like Serena Williams and even Beyonce experiencing racism in childbirth, we were just, you have six kids. <laughs> we were wondering what your experiences were like. Um, well, I would say I wasn't even aware of the statistic until um, after my fourth child. So in the three year gap between my last two, that's when it, I became aware of it. And I suddenly became petrified because um, even though I had never had any life-threatening situations happen, suddenly I realized, whoa, actually we're, you know, black women are dying and I'm at an age now as well as a multiple pregnancy as well. So I was at more risk. So I just really was panicking um, more than I ever have been because, you know, you don't go into hospital thinking at all that you're not going to come home, um, you know, especially with your baby and back to your other children. So for me, the things that I would notice is just that sometimes your care could maybe be a bit more rushed um, compared to maybe a non-black person. So I might have had a conversation with my midwife or um, doctor and then, uh, and it's quite, and it's cool whenever I haven't got any bad experiences, but you would just notice the little things like when they go to the next curtain, if it was like a white person, maybe they're a bit more empathetic, they are more, you know, they can talk a bit longer, they're sort of sharing a little bit more, just the niceties and um, spending a little bit more time, sort of nicer bedside manner. And then I can even then compare it to a black person who is not from the United Kingdom, doesn't speak with a British accent. And then you even see it, the change even greater. Um, I've seen it, I remember when I was in hospital with my newborn um, and uh, my care was okay. And I saw them go across to a woman who, who you know, wasn't from the UK, but was black. And uh, just the way the tone changed, it became condescending, it became patronizing, it became like, if she sort of had any concerns, it was like, it was like the talking down to her. Oh, oh no, you don't, no, no, no. And, and I just felt like, so, you know, I, obviously it's privacy, so I don't want to pretend I'm listening. So you can't just start jumping up and saying, don't talk to her like that. But you're sitting there and you're kind of like trembling, like I can see what you're doing and bless her. She is in a, you know, vulnerable position, you know, and um, she may or may not be picking it up. I don't know, but I am, you know, and mm. things like that. You know, you just, you just see sort of the change. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, actually it reminded me of my third, my third child. I remember saying to the woman, it's my third baby. I think it's going to go quite quickly. And so I'll just go and sit over there. Just, just wait and sit over there. And I'm just sitting there and gritting my teeth, feeling the baby's coming, feeling that, um, you know, I'm in agony. Right. And then I ended up on the floor and there was two white midwives. This story, like it just, it just came to me as we we're talking. <laughs> Two midwives standing at the doorway of the waiting room, just having a, just having a chat, you know. 
and I'm on, on the floor. Like, and I'm like, oh, you know, giving it all that. In the end, I just screamed, can somebody help me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was the only woman in the waiting room. It wasn't a pack, it was Saturday morning. I'm the only one in there and I'm on the floor and the two of them are just talking. And um, they literally, because I'd screamed out now, grabbed me, took me in and I literally had my son, I was on all four, still had my dress on, out he came. It really? was like, yeah, it was that, that fast. And, and I don't know, this might, might be white listeners saying, oh, that happened to me, I wasn't listened to, they didn't, um, you know, trust me when I, you know, was told them what was happening with my body. But, you know, I remember when I told the white receptionist, look, I've been having pains all morning, it's my third child, I think the baby's coming, and just sort of like, okay, just wait, yeah, it's almost like, shut up, <laughs> uh, I know yeah. what I'm doing, just go and sit down, do what you're told, and then that, then that happened. But, you know, from them, the baby was coming, everyone was great, but I just wonder, because I can't say for sure, I just wonder, maybe would have my concerns been taken a little bit more seriously had I um, not been a black woman? Yeah. So, you know, it's just know. very worrying because, you know, as it just a human being, you tend to hope that if someone is in labor and giving birth to a baby, yeah. that everyone around you will just kind of, if that is their profession to bring babies into the world, Mm. they will do that in the most positive and supportive way possible. Mm. I I can't quite get my head around the fact that this is not the case. Um, And we know that, you know, Tilly and I speak a lot. We have a lot of episodes on this podcast about birth. We're very into talking about birth and, you know, the hormones and, and how kind of rise in cortisol levels, you know, when your stress reduces the oxytocin that, helps the birth to progress um so you know it could be that black women are needing so many more interventions and are going through situations that cause these babies to die or the women to die because their stress levels are so high from the way they're being treated you know so these kind of little changes could make a huge difference to the outcomes it all leads back whether we're talking about the wellness industry whether we're talking about schools whatever area we're talking about it comes racism and biases and prejudices um, come into play. And unfortunately, the maternity ward is no different. You know, I'm just happy I got home, all my babies are here with me. Um, Devastating when you think of all the women that weren't so fortunate and weren't so lucky. Um, I don't know, like I, when you're in labor, I mean, do you really advocate for yourself? You need people to, you have to trust everyone around you in agony. I'm not going to start thinking about my rights when I'm going through. That's why I'm such a big advocate for doulas, for having a doula. I think every woman should have a doula. Definitely. Because my husband, you know, they're so traumatized by the pain you're going through. Their head's not even, you know, there. So it is so scary. I mean, I've really thought about my daughters in the future, that if I'm still around when I'm having babies, like I've got to be there or someone's got to be with them because it's that, it's that serious. It's just not being listened to, isn't it? It's, uh, um, you know, you always hear the thing, you know, strong black women. Yeah, yeah, we are strong. I think all women are strong. We are amazing, whatever race you are. But I do know that added sort of connotations on, on black women that, you know, you're strong, you can deal with it, you can handle it. Mm. Um, and I, I know sometimes black women are not given the pain relief when they are requesting it because of that thing. You can do it. Come on, just a couple more minutes when, mm. you know, white women, they're getting more you know, offered more medication. And we know that goes back to slavery when operations, everything were happening on the slave without any anesthetic because they didn't even believe 
that we could feel pain. We were so subhuman and stuff. So, and this was in the medical um, profession. So it, it all, you know, just trickles all the way down to today where we've got such a horrific stat that women are, black women are um, five times more likely to die. Very shocking. So we were going to kind of end by asking what changes we can make, but I think we've really covered it, haven't we? And I think that just by listening to, by kind of non-black people listening to this episode and hearing about the everyday nuances and, and microaggressions and things that impact the lives of black people, I think that in itself will hopefully help. Yeah. Do you have another takeaway message? I feel that if you care, then this is the time to show it. You know, it's beyond the hashtag. It's beyond, oh, isn't that a shame? And then turning over the channel and, you know, planning your day. Mm. It's if you care, if you care about the future. I mean, we're, communities are mixing more and more. You know, you might end up having a black grandchild or a black in-law or, you know, like when is it, you know, does it have to come to your front door? Will it have to affect somebody that you love mm. or, you know, that marries your son or daughter before you care? Yeah. You know, it, 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 we care about animals where we, we, you know, we care about feminism and the rights of women and, you know, black people, you know, if you care, then show it. I think just Google the slave trade, black history, police brutality. And if any of that that you ingest, all that information does not make you start saying, I'm going to care and then I'm going to start advocating, then I don't really know what more I can say. Yeah, I think that's why it's so important to read, you know, all the literature on this fiction as well, because fiction tells the stories as a story. And when we, when, you know, it opens up a different part of our brain, the imagine, you know, when we listen to things that open our imagination. Mm -hmm. And that's equally as important as reading, you know, there's some amazing contemporary nonfiction now about race. But I think reading the fiction like Toni Morrison, you know, Beloved, Kindred, Yellow Crocus, mm -hmm. Underground Railroad, you know, mm -hmm. all of these books are just as important to read because it, it gives us the actual, wow, this happened. I mean, there are some stories that I've read in fiction, some things, you know, that I know these things actually happened in slavery and it's, it, those things will stay with me forever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that by reading that, that also helps. So, it, you know, comes down to education. And, you know what, and I would say as well, um, when I on social media, a lot of times uh, if I wanted to follow someone, specifically a white person, I would look at who they're following and, I would often see that every single person they're following is white mm -hmm. and that would actually turn me off because I'm, I'm thinking well this person does not even has any interest in in black lives black experiences black, black voices, culture black culture so uh, you know I don't really know if there's anything they're going to be saying that I can really tap into because they don't even you know, you follow what you're interested in and you even follow things that maybe you don't know much about, but you know, you want to learn more about, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I just feel like be interested in black communities. Don't just take the good stuff. Don't just turn up at carnival with your flag and dancing around, you know, just embrace. And, and, and I think as well, even though I've said, if you care, I almost feel like it's sad that people actually have a choice whether they want to consider yeah. Black Lives Matter. Why, you know, you're human, you know, why is it even a choice that you can decide whether Black Lives Matter or not? We just want equality yeah. so that 
the rights and the privileges that your children are afforded, my children can be afforded. Um, the privileges that you and your husbands and partners face, that me and my husband and my friends, husbands and partners can face. Everybody that's breathing today has, a, has the, um, the opportunity to change that and be on the right side of history and not just leave it for their kids to do. You know, if you're awake, you're alive, you can see it, then you've got the opportunity now to change it. Absolutely. What a great takeaway message. Thank you. We'd love to end this episode with Vianne reading out one of her beautiful poems. Okay, this poem is called My Sisterhood. My sisterhood does not always look like me, black and quoting Maya. Sometimes I have found sisterhood in the depths of blue eyes and cheeks that flush red on hot days. Sometimes sisterhood arrives with straight black hair and brown skin, speaking mother tongues my spirit hears but cannot understand. My sisterhood is not always a female who grew from the same endometrial lining. Our blood may share no scientific facts, our bodies no mannerisms, but we are kin. Sisterhood has arrived with hair that is quilled like mine and with skin able to eat sun rays, but we still reach for different stars. They often ask if we are sisters. My sisterhood sometimes is my child, demonstrating God in the purest form. She holds my hand and pulls me into juvenile adventures just when my soul has forgotten how to laugh. Sisterhood finds you when spirit leads and hearts finally get a chance to sing. Sisterhood climbs down from trees, out of hiding places and unite. They sing together a song that only kindred spirits meant to be could possibly know. And everyone is dancing. Oh my God. I literally, I've, like that's just so beautiful. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. God. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And yes. yeah, I can't speak for the whole black community, but I hope what I've said has enlightened and, you know, it's just shed some light on the black experience. I think it definitely has. Just to let everyone know, we're posting a heap of resources in the show notes non-fiction fiction kids books videos people to follow check those out mostly please please just take this seriously talk to your children about it do more than just listen to this podcast take the time to do your own research and make educating yourself the priority and make small changes in your own perceptions to affect real long lasting change and we'll just end with the quote be the change you want to see in the world so thank you so much vianne Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was really amazing. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you took anything away from it that you think might benefit others, please share with family, friends, or on social media. Most of the podcasts we have grown to love ourselves have been recommended to us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And follow us on Instagram, at Healthy Happy Home Podcast where our intention is to build a beautiful and diverse tribe of souls to join us on this journey to wellness. Thank you to Mega Home Water Distillers for sponsoring this season of Healthy Happy Home. Head over to megahome-distillers.co.uk to learn more about the most reliable and efficient home drinking water distiller on the market and to benefit from a 5% discount as a listener of Healthy Happy Home by using the code HHH5 at checkout. Thank you to Megahome.